All right. Well, they say they say that for every hour time difference, it takes a day to recover. So I'm not quite there, but I'm pretty close. Uh, I just want to thank church. I want to thank you, Church of the Red Door, for uh, giving me the latitude to be able to do things like I did last week. You know, we've had a partnership. Uh, many of you that were there on when the day we launched at UCR, can you imagine six years ago? Six years ago. I mean, that's just unbelievable. Some of you were very young then, very, very young. And, uh, and Dr. Saref, uh, the president of Israel College of the Bible, the largest seminary in the Middle East, for those of you who didn't know that, uh, is, was with us that day. And um, he's actually going to be back with us in December, which will be great. He's going to be here in the desert for a few days, so I'm going to have him here on Sunday and either just let him go or interview him or do something. Uh, it's an extraordinary time we live in. It is an extraordinary time that we live in. To think about us meeting there where we did, just not too far from Ukraine, um, for the first global staff meeting. So we had four Israel College of the Bible. And I was really kind of the only outsider that I think was there. In t- well, I'm on the board, but uh, kind of outsider, non-staff. And uh, we had folks like Dr. Yoon and his wife Ruthie from Seoul, South Korea, who were there. He teaches Hebrew at Seoul at the university there and is kind of our staff representative in South Korea. I mean, when they go, when we, when we go there and they speak, uh, when Dr. Saref and, or Ares and, or whoever, uh, or Seth, Pastel, or whoever speaks, I mean, they'll, they'll get, they'll get t- thousands and thousands of uh, people in South Korea are just fascinated about what's going on in, in Israel and more specifically as the college there. We had, uh, though we had China lockdown stuff that was going on, some of our, uh, we, have a, we have also a board in Hong Kong and China. They were not able to attend because of the pretty strict uh, lockdown requirements in China. But they came in on a Zoom and prayed with us one day, and then we had people, it was kind of people from all over. We had all the U.S. staff, which was about 15, and then all the seminary, all the professors, everybody was there, and it was just, it was less expensive because the forint is not doing too well, as is the case with almost all currencies against the dollar right now, uh, but even more so than Israel. So that's where we decided to meet, and what a privilege it was to be asked to be able to speak at three, uh, three sessions of three, and um, it's amazing how that dovetails into where we are in Luke chapter 13. But I want to thank you as a church for giving me the latitude to be able to do things like that. It wasn't something I would have uh, just wanted to do, to hop on a plane and, and, and the timing and everything else. But as is, as is the case now, we're those who are led by the Spirit, now these are the sons of God. And I prayed about it for over a week and almost two weeks and really felt like I was supposed to go. As it turned out, uh, it's exactly where I was supposed to be. And, um, and I have reasons for that, and I'm happy to share that with you at a future date. But anywho, anywho, I'm back, and we are in Luke chapter 13, and uh, it is the consummation of what we looked at. We started when I was with you these last number of weeks and kind of a hit and miss a little bit, but we've been talking about this uh, six facets of Jesus' ministry that are really kind of unpacked in the last, in the 13th chapter of Luke. So we're going to ask the Lord now, Lord, would you just uh, superintend this time together and give us insight into your plans? Lord Jesus, We worship you. We do. All the glory and the power are yours. We ascribe to you today glory and power and majesty. Lord, I don't want to do this thing on my own. I am a created being. 
You're the creator of everything. Lord, every word that's uttered, I cling to, as the psalmist said in Psalm 119 in, the, in his long, it's just, I cling to your words, to your precepts. Lord, give us insight. Help us. Give us faith today that would carry us through right here in the 21st century, though this may seem like something that doesn't touch our lives specifically. It's not one of those practical application sermons. In some ways, it's everything because it's the narrative that you have for all humankind, the very reason for which you put us on the earth and how you're going to redeem the earth. Give us insight in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so I'm going to take you back, if you will, to... Luke chapter 13, I want to reread. I'm going to actually go back to verse 31. And the last time I was here with you, I talked to you a little bit about foxes and why Jesus, I believe that Jesus referred to Herod as a fox because foxes are always the one that are trying to kind of mess your life up and put thoughts in your head that are going to distract you from his ultimate purpose. But verse 31, Luke 13, just at that time, some Pharisees approached and said, go away, leave here. Herod wants to kill you. And he said, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons, perform cures today and tomorrow, and and the third day I reach my goal. That third song we sang this morning as we stood was, thank you for the blood of Christ. He knew he was about to spill it, to consummate everything that the prophets had been seeing, a restoration not only for the Jews, but for the entire world. He knew what his purpose was. Nevertheless, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. That's an indictment for the religious leaders. Many prophets had been killed through the period of the Mosaic Law all the way through now till some thirteen to 1,500 years later, the time of Jesus. And then he says this, and this is what we're going to talk about this morning, and this is what I alluded to and actually spoke on and touched on when I was in Budapest recently. Verse 34, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you just wouldn't have it. Behold, this is brutal, this is harsh, your house is left to you desolate. And I say to you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's a little bit cryptic. They couldn't have possibly understood what he was talking about. It was only in retrospect that would they really understand how desolate that house would be left. Not one stone upon another. Some 40 years or so later, after the time of Jesus, Titus rolled in Vespasian, and they just completely and utterly leveled Jerusalem. And then some 60 years later, Hadrian would come in and then utterly demolish anything that was left and actually salted, and it wasn't even really a habitable place for almost 2,000 years. It's an amazing fulfillment of prophecy. Jesus knew exactly. They were about to reject him as the Lamb of God, and their house was going to be left desolate. The question emerges, was God now done with the Jewish people. Was it over? Had they rejected the Messiah, their long-awaited Messiah, and now it's over? Some strains of theology suggest that for all intents and purposes, pretty much so, and now the church is 
kind of replaced Israel. It's called supersessionism, replacement theology, different things. Look, I have some good brothers that hold to this, and there's some valid, very valid positions for trying to understand. It's a blend. And then there's the other side of kind of the dispensational side, and whether you understand these theological terms is really not the point, but some people say, no, there's a very specific reason for Israel, and I'm not fully in that camp either, although I absolutely believe in a very specific destiny for the salvation of the Jewish people before Jesus comes back. I want to tell you that this passage is critical for understanding the totality of the narrative of the Bible. It was one of the things that I said uh, as I was speaking to these Arabs and Jews who were leading this charge, uh, probably, in my view, the tip of the sword for much of what's going on, not only in Israel, but all over the Middle East. And I said, look, I am dependent upon you, even back here in a place as weird as the Coachella Valley, the fantasy land that we live in, to be able to tell people the total narrative, I need you to succeed, I need Jewish men and women to begin to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is important to understand. I, I, the whole narrative tends to collapse a little bit for me, especially in light of Israel having become a nation again on May 15th in 1948 when Ben-Gurion signed it into existence, the modern state of Israel. Wherever you are on this issue, I don't want to get, I don't want to politicize this. I'm, this is not a geopolitical statement about how we do or what we do and all that. I, it's really not about that. It's about eschatology. Eschatology just means the study of future things. Eschatos, there is the original word, and it just means last, the study of last things. How is all this story going to be consummated? What's going to happen? All of us, whether or not you hold to more of a supersessionist position or a dispensational position, it, it, we can still come together and say, Jesus is coming back. But there's something in terms of our orthodoxy that leads to a differentiation in our orthopraxy. In other words, how we define the gospel, how we share the gospel, how we talk about the totality of the narrative of Scripture, and also how we deal with, well, maybe even friends that you have that are Jewish. Maybe you even hear here at Church of the Red Door, you're listening on television and you're Jewish and you're wondering, I, I wonder what all this is about, and I wonder how Christians and that, and are we really, uh, it just gets so confusing to me. Uh, this is important. This is radically important, and it helps me tell the story of the gospel. What we've talked about often is the gospel is a story to be told, not just a few requirements. You say this, and he says this, and you say that, and then you do this, and then you get baptized, and then you go to church. There's a story. Do you realize you are wrapped up in an extraordinary story that has specific definition? It puts you in time and space. And if you understand the fullness of the story, you'll be better able to tell the gospel, tell the story of the gospel. We looked at a bunch of facets of Jesus' ministry. We looked at his compassion in this portion of Scripture in Luke 13. We looked at his willingness to confront. He was not afraid to confront. We looked at his instruction on the very nature of the kingdom. We looked, well, he, he was talking about it's a narrow gate to enter. And then his resolve to finish his mission is where I left you last time. But now and this morning, we're going to look at his, well, his undeterred love of his own family, the Jewish people. Jesus loved 
his family. Jesus came, born of the tribe of Judah, right? He came loving his own people. Many of you will remember that Jesus was clear when he said, Am I, I came in Matthew chapter 15, I came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Romans chapter 1, I'll start in Romans chapter 1 this morning. Matthew 15, 24, and he answered, and I said, I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Let me say that again. This, I, you hear me quote this all the time, but it's important that you understand Jesus only had three, three and a half years of ministry in, the, in his body on earth. He had said some very dramatic and strange-seeming th- things. This is in the context of a woman who is not a Jew whose, whose daughter was cruelly demon-possessed. It was brutal. And, he, and she came and fell at his feet and said, would you do something? And he said, it's not good to throw the children's bread to the dogs. Jesus said that. Jesus is so inclusive. And it, but how can he say that? What was he thinking? And she said, but even the dogs feed from the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And immediately her daughter was was made well and released from this demonic possession. And what we get here is we get his then response, I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, does that mean he didn't come to die for the world? Well, no, we know John three sixteen, don't we? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But there is an order to this. Romans chapter 1, verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, Paul would tell the Romans, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone, everyone who believes, well, but to the Jew first and then to the Greek. There is an orderliness in the telling of the gospel. There's an understanding that God has used the Jewish people as the conduit to be a light to the nations. Who wrote the Old Testament. Who wrote the New Testament? It was Jews. This is not some Gentile fabrication made up way after the fact, trying to create another religion. These are the Jews. Some believed in him, some didn't. And the prophets had seen it from the very beginning. Many would reject him. They would stumble over the stumbling, over the cornerstone. They would reject this stone. They, God knew that this was going to be the case. This is the way the story goes. If you don't understand this functional story, you will not be able to tell the gospel as accurately as you could. Why the Jews? Well, he chose Abraham, who is the progenitor of the Jewish people. And technically, yeah, he has Isaac, and the promise was through Isaac, and then eventually uh, the sons of Jacob, and one of them would be, well, Judah and Benjamin, who would eventually be evolve, evolve into what we would say a derivation of the Jews, uh, Judah, a portion of Judah. But in the end, Abraham was the genesis of the Jewish people. He was the progenitor of the Jewish people. Why? God chose, for whatever reason, in perfect time, I'm going to reveal myself to, uh, to a man. And Abraham left where he was, and he went to a place that God would show him, and out of that came well, this Genesis chapter 12, I'm going to bless those who bless you all, and in your seed all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. A picture of a, of a global revival, a global spread of the gospel through the seed of Abraham, and then Paul makes it clear in his letter to the Galatians that that seed was Jesus, and the promise was the Holy Spirit. That's what we are. If you're a non-Jew here today or listening, if, you ha- if you're born again, meaning that you've just taken the seed of the Spirit through Jesus and His blood and you have taken it in and you are now passed over, Passover, 
You are passed over from the wrath of God that is on you if you reject him. I don't like talking about hell. I don't like talking about wrath. I don't know. Well, no, who, who does? Unless somebody does something to you or takes your property or kills somebody that you love, then you're willing to talk about justice and wrath. And yet we hold God accountable for the wrath that he has. Well, he's a loving God, and without, without justice, there is no love. Romans 11, if you will, chapter 17, I'm going to talk to you in a minute about the three great untils. We've just looked at one of them, and I'm not going to return to you until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, why was that? Well, that was Psalm 118 he's quoting, and that was what, that was the, what, when he came in on a donkey riding in as Zachariah had perfectly prophesied, when he came riding in on a donkey, and they were glorifying him as king. Here's our king, here's our king. And they were throwing palm branches. We call it Palm Sunday. They're throwing palm branches, and they were, they were chanting Psalm 118, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And I've taught on this before, but we have many new folks, and it's important that you get this. He's saying, until that kind of reception happens again, you won't even see me. They were believing that he was the king. And then a few days later, they were chanting, crucify him, crucify him. And then another rejection, and then a desolation was left. But Paul, this is important that you get Romans chapter 11. It's so vitally important in the context of Luke 13, 34. If some, verse 17 of Romans 11, but if some of the branches were broken off, now he's going to use a metaphor of an olive tree and said, here's the natural olive tree, and some of these branches, the Jews, the the, the Jews are this tree, And Christ is the root, but the Jews of the tree here, if some of these branches were broken off, he says, and you being a wild olive, here's a a Gentile, he's speaking to the Gentiles here, a wild olive tree were grafted in among them and became partaker of them of the rich root of the olive tree, don't be arrogant toward the branches, even the broken off branches. There's not one, I guarantee you there's not one person here that doesn't have a friend who's Jewish. How do you think of them? What do you, what do you say? What, what, how do you perceive them in, 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 in your theology? Do not be arrogant toward the branches, but if you are arrogant, remember it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. We were born into what? What were we born into? A new nation, a holy nation. Paul was very clear in his letter to the Ephesians, you, were, you had nothing. You're without God and without hope in the world, but you've been grafted in, and I'm pairing these two, Ephesians 2. You were kind of grafted in to this new nation. You were grafted in. Don't be arrogant towards the branches that were broken off. Now, I want to, as I told you a minute ago, well, what does this have to do with the end time things? Why is this so important to the story? It starts with Abraham, then there's all these prophets that are sent, and they already said you're going to reject him. Then they reject and stumble over the stumbling stone. Jesus comes, and because they rejected Jesus, it was, it was forced out of Jerusalem under persecution, especially right after the stoning of Stephen, and it went all over the map. It went all over the Mediterranean, around the Aegean, all the way, and, and we're recipients of that halfway around the world. All these years later, had it had it just been consummated there in Jerusalem, it might just been a sect of Judaism, but they rejected the message, not everybody, but as a nation, they rejected the message. There were maybe 10, 15, 20,000 Jews who were following Jesus. 
They were called away, and it would have stayed there, but through the persecution, it forced it all over the world. But they're going to come back. At the end of time, the Jews are going to look at Jesus and say, He is the long-awaited Messiah of Israel. And you say, whoa, maybe one day. Let me be clear. That day is upon us. Let me say it again. That day is upon us. There's not a person in here that hasn't heard of Jews for Jesus or something. Now the college, I've told you this before. Last time they were here, we had over 100 million views on the website, 100 million views. It is now over 200 million views. Can you imagine? I mean, we're talking Kardashian kind of stuff here. I mean, that may be in a week, but 200 million views, and many of them in Hebrew. Thousands of views every single day within Israel. Over half the people, over half the Jews on the planet today, over half for the first time within the last few years are in, back in the land of Israel. There are three great untils. We've looked at one, Luke 13. Now we're going to look at the second one. So the first, well, so there's going to be some kind of, they're going to give him a reception like Palm Sunday, but there's another until. I'm going to take you to Luke chapter 21. This is a little bit controversial. I don't think this portion should be at all. I think it's clear that this has already occurred through the destruction of the temple, and I think most theologians would agree with that. It gets a little bit dicey here. I understand Now, let me just put on your thinking cap here for a minute, and if you don't get all this, it's fine, but some believe that all this has already occurred. Every, all, pretty much all the eschatology, even even the book of Revelation, even Jesus, I I can't buy this at all, but it's called preterism. All these things that were talked about had already occurred in the past, and there's full preterism, there's partial preterism and all these things, but everything we read here occurred way in the past, and then eventually Jesus comes back. They don't disregard that, but that's called preterism. Uh, More of a dispensational view is that almost all this stuff is into the future. Now, most agree that this has already occurred, but this is in the context of future things. And so Luke chapter 21, this is important for you to get, verse 20, but when you see, this is Jesus speaking, Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. He was giving more, he was putting more meat on the bones of what he had told them in Luke 13, 34, and 35. Armies are going to surround. Remember when I said your house is going to be left to you desolate? Well, now I'm going to put a little more meat on that. There'll be armies are going to surround Jerusalem. Happened in 70 AD. It's a part of history, not just biblical history, but any, we have many extant manuscripts. We understand the history of the Jews. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, and those who are in the midst of the city must leave, and those who are in the country must not enter the city, because these are days of vengeance so that all things which are written, now notice, so that all things which are written must be fulfilled. What do you mean written? What's written at this point? The Old Testament is written. The Tanakh is written. The the Old Testament had already prophesied that there was going to be a rejection and that there was going to be another desolation And that's what Jesus is saying here. These things are already written. Woe to those who are pregnant, to those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress upon the land and and wrath to his people, and they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all 
the nations. Now, that occurred. This has occurred. That happened in 70 A.D. Don't try to put this into the future, that Israel's going to be sacked again and led captive into all the nations. Don't put this into the future, and, and very few do. And they will fall by the edge of the sword, led captive into the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. Jerusalem, by the way, has been sacked, I think, 29 times. Sacked and rebuilt and sacked and rebuilt and sacked and rebuilt and sacked and rebuilt. Underfoot by the Gentiles until, now until number two, until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. What does that mean? There is a place for a rejection in the story, in the telling of the narrative of all Scripture. There's going to be God's mercy is going to be poured out on all the nations. You're going to be that light. And, and Paul in Acts 13 claimed that he and the other believing Jews were that light, those who had not rejected Jesus, and it went to the ends of the earth. We are recipients of the sacrifice lives of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and Peter and James and all, you know, the apostles when Luke may or may not have been a, a Jewish, but that's another debate. But anyway, we, we get all this and that they're, they're laid down sacrificial lives and then the lives of many Jews beyond that to show the Gentiles. We, we were out worshiping trees and stars and rocks and everything else. We didn't know, we didn't, polytheism and everything else to show us that there is one God and Jesus is God's plan for the earth. Thank you for that. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever really thought how indebted we are to people like the Apostle Paul? Peter crucified upside down. Thank you. Give honor where honor is due. Jewish men and women, those supporting Jesus' ministry, from what I read, were mostly women. It's amazing to me. Thank you. Jewish people, for being a light to me and taking my absurd, chaotic life, dysfunctional life, and bringing it out of darkness and into his light. Thank you, men and women, Jewish men and women followers of Jesus the Messiah. The Gentiles... It's going to be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And then what? Well, you have to go back to Matthew 13. See, if you don't understand that, what is going to happen? Until they get to a place where it's slow, a slow progression, and at some point they're going to receive Jesus with blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, I see these, I call this the great overlap. Sometimes we see it as very stark and dispensationalist, dispensations of time, in my view, tend to see this too starkly. There's like this time, and then there's the church, and then it's back to Israel, and God deals with Israel. Wait a minute. There are Jewish men and women that are standing up, and hundreds of millions of views, and all this other kind of thing, and, and many are coming to belief in Jesus, and we're not... There's a rapture, and this and that, and we're not raptured, and it gets a little confusing. There's an overlap here. And what this shows me is when Jewish men and women began to say, Jesus is the Messiah, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, then what I'm thinking, having read Luke 21 and Luke 13, I'm thinking, well, wait a minute. Is the chime of the Gentiles getting close to an end? 
That's the first thing that comes into my mind. I'm just, I'm just a re- realist. Jewish people, for the first time in 2,000 years, are very open. And I mean, every, it, it's just common. This was not the case 20, 30 years ago at all. Zero. Almost zero. I won't say zero, but almost zero. I mean, we've been involved. I help, we helped build a little playground there at a mashav in Israel called Yad Hashmonah, and some of you may have even helped. This was years ago, and it's actually, strangely enough, where the college is now going to build, a, build our, their new campus right there in the Judean hills of Jerusalem. Not, so we won't be in Netanya on the, on the Mediterranean there, and now we'll be going back. And that was a few years ago, and it was, there were already five generations of believing Jewish people. The very first family was right there at that Mashav, Jews who believed in Jesus. And no, they, they were not now Christians and not Jewish. They were more Jewish than they had ever been in believing into Jesus as the Messiah. And now five generations of believing Jews. Some of you have been there with me when we've gone to Israel. Jeff, you're just kind of into your Israel thing. No, 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 no. You have to understand this is part of the glorious story. Do not be arrogant against the branches. We're crazy if we do, if we're arrogant towards the Jewish people who have been cut off because of their unbelief. We're crazy if we do that. So what happens when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in? I believe a massive worldwide recognition of Jesus as the Messiah. I call, this is a great harvest. Now, I've talked to you about this before. I will continue to talk about it. One of the reasons that we invest and that we're involved in seeing Jewish people understand who their Messiah was, a kind of a light now back, Jesus' light through the Gentiles, which is really strange. Uh, one of the reasons we're engaged in this is because it, I believe it leads to an extraordinary explosion of belief in Jesus around the world. Do you need that in these days? Does it feel like we're so marginalized in the West and nobody cares and everybody's woke or this or that and politics and yada, 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 nobody cares and that we're hated, evangelicals are hated and all that kind of thing? I believe in the greatest harvest that we're ever going to see, commensurate with the Jewish people beginning to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let me tell you why I believe that. And many of the Puritans, the early founders of this very nation, Romans chapter 11, verse 25. Paul again, I don't want you to be, well, brothers, to be uninformed of this mystery. This is mysterious. He also writes in this letter to the Ephesians, this is an extraordinary mystery that Jews and Gentiles are going to come together and be one new man, he calls it. Don't be uninformed of this mystery so that you will be not wise in your own estimation. Don't overestimate your theological prowess. You're in. The Jews rejected him. Forget that. Oh, it's fine if a few come to know Jesus, but we, we're the Gentiles. No, don't. Paul is saying, what are you doing? You're forgetting about the conduit. You need to honor a nation that has paid an incredible sacrificial price to be the chosen people. And why are they the chosen people? They were chosen for a task. As I've told you before, you have to ask the question when you say the chosen people, chosen for what? To be a lightning rod if they are at the center of God's plans and that the Messiah was going to come through them, they were going to be a lightning rod for Satan's activities in the earth. And I, I can't, I, I'll be honest with you, I can't even give you an explanation for anti-Semitism other than that, other than a spiritual one. It just doesn't make any sense to me. It's just weird. 
Don't be uninformed of this mystery so that you will be not wise in your own estimation. A partial hardening, partial, notice, a partial hardening has happened to Israel. Here's your next until. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So, because it's only partial, all of Israel shall be saved just as it is written. And he quotes Isaiah 59, 20 here. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. I don't know how it could be more clear. I'll be honest with you. You read Romans 11 in that context and with that understanding that there's going to be a revival among Jewish people. I don't know how you don't see that. I don't know how a person can read that and say, well, don't share the gospel with Jewish people because we don't do that because, you know, somehow we're raptured and then halfway through the tribulation, then they... Re- no. My fr- you know, my Jewish friends in Israel, you know what they tell me? They think that teaching, don't share the gospel with the Jewish people, is one of the most anti-Semitic things there ever was. Don't Now, I know that's harsh. Don't share. I had a woman... I had a woman that I was first when I was doing the work with Bill McCartney all those years ago, right after he left Promise Keepers. I had a woman I was on the phone with, and it just floored me. I'll never forget the conversation. I can almost remember every word, word for word. Um, and I was telling her about what, what, what we had planned to do, and she had done a lot of work among the Jewish people. And she almost began to curse me for sharing the gospel with the Jewish people because God does that somewhere way in the future after we're raptured somehow. And I said, how do we get so twisted in that? What did Paul say in Romans 1? First to the Jew and then to the Gentile. Everywhere he went, he went into the synagogue first and then he went into the streets to talk to the non-Jews. Everywhere he went. It's amazing. That's the great overlap. Jewish men and women are beginning to say, hey, we've, re- we've reconsidered this. And they wouldn't say this. Well, they would if once they're born again, but that partial hardening is coming off and it's coming off in your lifetime. I'm just, looking at, I'm just looking at events on the ground. And in closing this morning, Romans 11, why do I think it's going to lead to an incredible harvest? Well, let's read it. Verse 11 and 12 and then verse 15. Paul finishes this argument in 11, 11. He says, I say then, they, the Jewish people, did not stumble so as to fall. Did they, rhetorically, did they? May it never be. Why? It's a partial hardening. A partial hardening. But by their transgression of having rejected the Messiah, which the prophets had prophesied, salvation has come to the Gentiles. This is what I said a minute ago. Because they rejected Jesus as the Messiah, it just was, like, again, I've used this metaphor before, many of you heard it, but like a dandelion. Stephen's stoned and all this persecution arises, and God's just like, all right, you ready? I, this is not just for the Jews. Of course, Jesus came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel, knowing that he would put his spirit through the atonement in these believers in Jesus who were Jewish, but then he had to say, well, you're going to have to get out of Jerusalem. I'll just put a little persecution down there. And he went, and the dandelion seeds went all over the Mediterranean. And many of you are, well, all of us are recipients of that. And it just... And now we're halfway around the world. We're talking about Jesus. I've been transformed by Jesus. Jesus is changing my life. You have to understand the story. Are you with me? You have to understand the story. Why did, why did, transgression, why did their transgression lead to the salvation of the Jews, Gentiles? 
to make them jealous. Does your life, your love of Jesus, make your Jewish friend jealous? I actually have some Jewish friends who I think, some of them know very little about either the Old, certainly the New Testament, certainly even the Old Testament. Many are jealous of the relationship when we talk about God and our relationship through Jesus to the Heavenly Father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They really are. They're like, well, hey, you know, I, I've had this experience over and over and over over the last 20 years. It's amazing. But unfortunately, the history of the church, <laughs> we didn't make him jealous. We made him angry. Verse 12 says, now, if their transgression, if by their rejection, riches for the world, right? By their rejection, it went all over the world. And by their failure, it was riches for the Gentiles. How much more will their fulfillment be? He just said there, were, there was going to be a, a massive restoration of belief in Jesus among Jewish people. He, again, quoting Isaiah 59, 20. Verse 15 says, For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what do you think is going to happen when they accept Jesus? Life from the dead. That's where I think your global harvest is, your global revival before Jesus comes back. So for Jesus to love the world... He came out not only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He came for the world, but he knew if he came specifically for the lost sheep of the house of Israel, in doing so, the world would one day be saved through the conduit of believing Jews, believing in Jesus, following Jesus, being born again, and preaching to people like me who are like, I just walking through my life causing chaos and anarchy and pain in everybody's lives. I didn't need Christianity or religion or any of that. I just needed to be connected to the creator of all things. And Paul tells the Colossians that everything was created by him and for him, Jesus. I tell my kids all the time, Christianity didn't save my life. Jesus changed my life. I know it's semantics, but please understand, Jesus changed my life. How did I get that info? Finally, I just read the Bible. Who wrote it? Well, the New Testament, Jewish men and women believing in Jesus. And guess what? Old Testament, Jewish men and women believing in Jesus who hadn't come yet. First Peter says the prophets and the priests, they all saw these things. They all saw it coming down the pike. And Jerusalem, you kept stoning them. So now, your house is being left to you desolate. But there's a big but here. But there's going to come a day. When the time of the Gentiles has been fulfilled and you're going to begin to see Jesus. And, and Zechariah couldn't have seen this more clearly. In fact, turn if you have your Bibles in closing, Zechariah, I could just, you know, don't laugh at me because many of you say, we know you could go on and on. But uh, Zechariah, it is very important to see. Zechariah chapter 12, this day is coming. In fact, it already is starting. The overlap is already here says this, in that day uh, I will pour out, verse 10, on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. Now this is written 500 years before the time of Jesus. 
The Romans hadn't even come up with anything like crucifixion yet. That wouldn't happen until 63 years before the time of Jesus. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. In that day there will be great mourning in Jerusalem like the mourning of Hadrodramon in the plain of Megiddo, and the land will mourn. When do you think that's happening? It's already happening. In your lifetime. As I was there in Budapest, I was watching the presentations done by our friends. And almost, I don't think any, any of them made a presentation without weeping. Not one of them. They were talking about Jesus and the restoration of the walls and everything else. And they just... Wept. See, folks, this is happening. What kind of person ought you to be? You say, you know, Jeff, you need to give us some practical application. Was this just a little teaching for us this morning? No, you now, you now have a better ability to tell the gospel in its fullness. And you also have an understanding that God is absolutely spot on. If he said it, he's going to do it. And, and then lastly, I'll tell you this. The time of the Gentiles is coming to a close. What type of people ought we to be? Have you given your life to Jesus? Are you wholehearted about it? Does it seem strange that God is going to fulfill his promise? Look, by the way, if he doesn't fulfill his promises to Israel in any specific way, why do I think he's going to fulfill his promise to say, I go to prepare a place for you that one day you may be where I am? Well, you said this to the Jewish people and you're not doing anything about that. I, I you know... Maybe I can't trust your word. 